Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Today we have for you an RD Extra featuring a lecture by Reasonable Doubts co-host Justin Schieber. The name of the lecture is The Problem of Non-God Objects, and while some of the ideas presented in it have been brought up on the podcast before, here Justin provides the most complete formulation of the argument and consideration of its criticisms that we've heard on the show so far. If you have any feedback for Justin, please leave a comment on doubtcast.org or send us an email at doubtcast at gmail.com. And we'll be back soon with new episodes of Reasonable Doubts in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Okay, so I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk to you guys tonight uh, about a, an argument that I've been working on for, for quite a while, actually, now. And I think it's a good argument. I think that it has some real promise. I, uh, I'm, I'm convinced. But, but, of course, we all know uh, that we all have our biases. And so the best way to try and, and uh, avoid those is to submit our ideas to uh, people that will uh, gladly criticize them. And so that's what I want to do tonight. So for this initial presentation, I, uh, I'm just going to be laying out the argument and justifying each premise. And what I want you to do, because I don't want to be the only one doing work tonight, is I want you to pay careful attention. Uh, you, you may agree with my conclusion, but that's not what I'm necessarily interested in. I'm, I'm interested in, in real criticism of this argument. I want to know... Is my argument valid? Is, are my premises uh, sufficiently justified? And uh, is there something I haven't thought of in terms of objections? About as long as there have been uh, people presenting arguments for the existence of God, uh, this has probably been almost as long as people have been, been believing in God. And so, now for as long as that has been, there's always been those pesky contrarians uh, ready and willing to answer those arguments and show why, actually, they're not very good arguments. Also, there have been those wanting to forward arguments of their own to show why, actually, the opposite conclusion is the case, that God does not exist. Now, these are, are called atheological arguments. Generally, most atheological arguments are going to fit into one of two categories. The first category being... Uh, God versus world arguments. Now, these are arguments that, that attempt to show an incompatibility between God, the existence of God, and reality, the way the world is. Probably the most well-known example of this is the problem of evil, right? Because the problem of evil attempts to argue from the existence of evil in the world to the fact that God can exist. And, of, of course, if we define God as all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, we know that he would be aware of such evil. We know that he would, it would be well within his power to stop that evil. And we also know that he would want to, it seems, to stop that evil because he's all good. Now, whether that argument is a good argument, I, I'm not going to speak to tonight. Now, another example of this might be just the fact of evolution, right? If we have a certain interpretation of our holy book, which which says that, that uh, the variation of species came about in a very different way than what, we, than what our best science can tell us, then we know that there's a problem there and something will have to give. Now, the other kind of atheological argument is what Theodore Drange would call an incompatible properties argument. So these are arguments that would attempt to show an incompatibility between two or more of God's uh, supposed properties. And so, some good examples of these are uh, omniscience and free will, right? What do we really mean by omniscience? What do we mean by free will? Are these compatible? 
Because if God knows everything, he knows the future, and so it would seem to follow that he would know exactly what he's going to be doing with absolute certainty exactly a year from now. If that's the case, when that time arrives, is he free to do otherwise? This would be an, an argument of that kind, of um, incompatible properties arguments. Another kind would be that God is transcendent, but he's also omnipresent. Now that's a bit curious. Transcendence seems to imply that you're transcending something, that is to say that there's some place that you're not at. But then if you're omnipresent, you're, you're everywhere. Uh, that seems to be a contradiction as well. But, but again, a lot of this stuff is going to boil down to exactly what you mean by these terms. And so it may not be the case that it's, that it's a contradiction. So the argument I'm going to be sharing with you tonight is of the first type, because it attempts to show an incompatibility between God as defined by Christian theism and the fact that the universe, or rather any non-God object for that matter, the fact that those exist. Hence the name, the problem of non-God objects. So, first things first, what is a non-God object? A non-God object is just any object that isn't God. So, pretty much anything you can think of that isn't God falls under this. Uh, the universe as a whole. Uh, the many parts of the universe. Some uh, non-God objects are available to us, and some are Mitt Romney's tax returns. As I said, you know, there, pretty much anything will fall under this category. And, what, and actually what my argument is, is that merely the existence of even one non-God object in my argument, disproves the existence of the Christian God. Okay, so the apparent contention that my argument seeks to highlight is within classical theism is, is not really a new one. People have, have noticed this issue before and have discussed it before. Uh, while my version of the argument is my own, uh, the issue has been noticed by several thinkers, including the great rationalist Benedict de Spinoza. So, what is God? Um, a lot of people have just this image of this bearded man in the sky, but is that really what Christians believe? Uh, clearly, that's probably not the case. Um, so, the Christian God, the, the God of Christian theism, more specifically, the God of, of perfect being theology, which is the conception of the Christian God that I'm going to be uh, arguing against tonight, is perfect, both morally and ontologically. So, what does that mean, ontologically? Uh, Ontology is, is the study of being, of, uh, of the things that exist, of what it means to exist, uh, what something is, is perhaps composed of, uh, so that something that is perfect ontologically, if a being is perfect ontologically, what that means is that if he walks into a room, the contents of that room improve. That's kind of what, uh, what we need to be thinking of here. Uh, Anselm of Canterbury identified God as that which no greater can be conceived. So now, now part of being perfect is having what philosophers call great-making properties. Not just having them, but, but being unable to fail to have them. And having those properties to their maximal degree. This means that God doesn't just know things. He's not just... He doesn't just know a lot of things more than anybody else, even more than all of humanity combined. He knows the maximal things you can know. He's all-knowing. God isn't just more powerful than, than all of us. He's not more powerful uh, than Superman. He's the most powerful a being can possibly be. So when we think of this, then it, it, it becomes clear that asking a question like, uh, why isn't God more loving, or why isn't God more powerful, is kind of like asking, why isn't that perfect circle more round, right? It just, it doesn't make any sense. Now, God is also thought to be the only necessary being. And that is to say that he is existentially unique in that he is the only being that exists in all possible worlds, which is kind of a fancy way of saying that of all possible ways that reality could have been God exists necessarily in all of them. Um, he can't have failed to exist. Now, to kind of flesh out what this means, 
uh, for possible worlds. When I say possible world, the, world, the word world doesn't mean Earth. The word world means all of reality. So actually, there's a possible world where the Earth doesn't exist, where just the universe exists and the planets and, and all that, but Earth never actually formed. That's a possible world. There's a possible world where, uh, where you're all sitting here wearing red hats. That's a possible world. Now, as for God, th this shopping list of, of how I've been attributing things to God, uh, this, this can go on and on, but I think that this is a fair, albeit not perfectly exhaustive conception of the nature of the Christian God. Uh, that is to say, nothing, of course, of the sheer variety of, of Christian denominations that disagree on everything uh, from the nature of infant baptism to the actual means of salvation. Um, and anybody who's talked to more than one uh, Christian would know that, of course, they're not always going to agree on, on their particular conception of God. And so this argument, uh, as, as good as I think it is, uh, is only going to be as good as the Christians who buy into the very specific God that I've laid out here. So, imagine, if you will, what the state of affairs, causally but not temporally prior to God's initial creation act, was like. So, what I mean by this is that God is supposed to be timeless, right? So, we can't say that God exists before uh, the Big Bang or the creation act in Genesis, whatever version you want to hold to. It's not as though he exists before as in time, but he exists causally prior. Now, um, so if we imagine what that state of affairs was like, then because God is the only necessary being, what we're imagining is a state of affairs where God exists alone. And there's nothing else. There's not even angelic beings. There's, there's no demons. There's, there's nothing. There's not even empty space. It's just that all of existence is identical to God. That phrase, the state of existence, and the word God refer to the same entity. We can think of this as a kind of divine Trinitarian solipsism here. Now I want to suggest that if we, uh, that if we stretch our minds to really conceive of this, and we take into consideration that God is supposed to be perfect, that we run into a significant problem for the conception of God. So, if we understand perfection as a kind of state of completeness and flawlessness, and having those great-making properties that we discussed earlier uh, to their maximal degree, then to imagine a hypothetical state of affairs even slightly better or preferable to a perfect mind would be simply impossible. After all, what's more round than a perfect circle? It simply doesn't make any sense. So... Here's the problem. For God's initial creation act to be an intentional one, he needed to desire a world composed of God and non-God objects more than a possible world where it's just God. But if there is a world more perfect than pure divinity, a state more perfect than divine Trinitarian solipsism, then surely this initial state can be improved, or wasn't perfect in the first place. So premise one. There is a possible world, we'll call it P, that is God existing alone and nothing else existing. As Neil Manson correctly observes in his 2008 article, Why Design?, quote, Christian theists are committed to the idea that a world consisting of God alone is a possible world given that they believe God is the free creator, ex nihilo, of all contingent concrete entities. So, we, we try to imagine what that state of affairs was like, but perhaps the words of William Lane Craig will help us out even more. Uh, William Lane Craig is a research professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology. He writes in his 2001 article titled, God in the Beginning of Time, quote, In reality... God existing sans creation is entirely alone, utterly changeless and perfect, and not a single event disturbs his immobility. There is no before, no after, no temporal passage, 
no future phase of his life. There is just God, changeless and solitary. Nothing exists but God in this utterly changeless state, unquote. Now, I don't know about you, but that just sounds really depressing. Uh, having no future phase of your life, you're, you're stuck in one timeless moment. But that's, that is the Christian belief of, of an atemporal God. Now, premise two, God is a perfect being, a being in which all the greatest goods are maximized, and we've already discussed what that means, where God is identified as that which no greater can be conceived. Uh, J.P. Moreland, distinguished professor of philosophy, also at Talbot School of Theology, says, in, says it a bit better than I can. He says, quote, To say that God is perfect means that there is no possible world where he has his attributes to a greater degree. God is not the most loving being that, that happens to exist, Rather, he is the most loving being that could possibly exist. So that God's possessing the attribute of being loving is to a degree such that it is impossible for him to have it to a greater degree. Premise three is actually the conclusion from one and two. So premise three, I argue that therefore P is the best possible world. A world in which all that exists are all the greatest goods maximized. And I want to be clear as to what kind of inference I'm drawing and, and what kind of inference I'm not drawing. I am not saying that because the things that exist in such a world are perfect, therefore the world itself is perfect. That's not the inference I'm drawing. Um, because to infer that something is true of the whole simply because it is true of the parts of the whole would be to commit the fallacy of composition. And I have no interest in doing that. Rather. I am inferring that something is true of the whole because it is true of something identical to that whole. The possible world is identical to God. And if God is perfect, it follows that that possible world is perfect. So, premise four. God always desires the best possible world over all other, all other possible worlds. Um, and I, I just take this as intuitively obvious. Uh, that it is greater to desire that the best of all possible worlds be the actual world than it is to desire that a less than best of possible worlds be the actual world. Because the former is conceivable and clearly the better of the two, it must be what the mind of God is like if he is to exist. An omniscient and perfectly rational being would recognize the best possible world if it does exist and always desire it over all other possible worlds. Uh, Richard Swinburne of Oxford uh, agrees in his 2003 article, The Argument to God from Fine-Tuning Reassessed. He says, quote, A perfectly good being will try to realize goodness as much as he can. Insofar as there is a unique best possible world, God will surely make it. Now, if there is no one best possible world, but a number of, in of, of incompatible equal best worlds, then he will surely make one of them. Swinburne, in his use of the modal phrase possible world, actually means possible creation, which is not the standard use here, but the point I'm making still stands, given his initial premise that a, a perfectly good being would try to realize uh, goodness as much as he can. Uh, premise five. Therefore, God always desires P which is that initial state that we've talked about, over all other possible worlds. Now, this is simply a conclusion from 3 and 4. Um, the emphasis on always is important here, because a perfect being wouldn't just prefer perfection over imperfection some of the time, or even most of the time. A perfect being would prefer perfection over imperfection all of the time. Premise 6. If any non-God objects were to exist in the actual world, then God desired some other possible world over P, such that he made it the actual world. Now, to support this premise about the sovereignty and intentional creation of, of God, we actually turn to scripture here. Uh, John 1.3 says that all things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. An act is intentional when it is directed at a goal. So some states of affairs are preferable to the agent, God, than the current state. 
It isn't always the case that such a goal is the result of a rational assessment of one's options and opportunities, but our concern here is the intentional action of God. And of course, God would be a perfectly rational being with all the knowledge relevant to the opportunities before him. So if non-God objects exist, God made them and he had a desire to make them. Now, premise seven. Um, Non-God objects exist in the actual world. Now, this, uh, I hope I don't have to provide too much support. Uh, The fact that non-God objects exist, the fact that I'm here presenting this, and I'm not God, uh, kind of implies that non-God objects exist. And then we, we get to... Eight, which is a conclusion from seven and six, uh, it just follows from modus ponens, which is a, a kind of inference from six and seven. It says that therefore God desired some possible world over P. So, as we said that, um, you know, as as the scripture says, if if uh, if something exists, God created it, right? Uh, we know that things exist, so we know that God created it, and He did so intentionally, so He had to desire to create it. The problem is we see a contradiction. It is impossible for God to always desire P over all other possible worlds and to desire any possible world over P. God existing in the actual world entails a contradiction. Because remember, five said that God would always desire the best possible world. And eight says that there was at least one time where God desired something else, something less than best. So if this argument is valid, and, and if, you, if you are a theist who finds every premise more likely than not as a description of how you believe reality is structured, then, then there's a significant problem here. So now we have a, a, a basic understanding of how this argument works. Um, now with the time I have left, I would like to quickly explore a few objections. Um, some objections that have actually received and some that I kind of anticipate on receiving from this argument. Now, of course, if, you, if you've already thought of some on your own, uh, great. Uh, save them for the Q&A, uh, and I, I may actually address your objection here. So, the first one. God, with his creative nature, will create no matter what. It just happens because of the way that he is. Not because of a desire, actually. So, so... Justin's argument, it fails because it kind of relies on an inappropriate anthropomorphization of God. Anthropomorphization, is that a word? So this, this objection is just, is just denying that, uh, that God would, would desire to create the world. It just happened as a kind of fact about the way that God is. Um, now there are, I mean, this is a, of course a, a, a perfectly fine way to go. The problem, of course, is that there are going to be implications to this. There are going to be theological implications to taking this this course. Uh, First, creation was not a free act. And the most important act of God seems to be creation. So if God is a free being, then it kind of seems a bit silly for God to have his most important act not be a free act. That just seems counterintuitive. Um, and it also becomes, God becomes a kind of machine. And so we don't really congratulate machines when they do things that are just because of their nature. We, we congratulate things when, when they strive and they intentionally have a goal and they achieve it, right? So we don't, uh, we don't, we don't pat a frog on the back because he's green, right? Just because of the fact of his nature. Uh, a second problem with this might be that the universe and humanity become devoid of, of original purpose, meaning, and value. Lives become empty and meaningless uh, until God, of course, realizes what he did. Oh, I look what I did here. Uh, and then he invents a purpose for that, a kind of very after-the-fact thing. So any meaning and purpose is, is kind of a, a, a total just convention of God's that he imposes upon the world. Third, this seems to rob God of his special, unique ontological status. Remember, we said that God was the only necessary being, um, but no longer is he the necessary is he the only necessary being. The universe is also a necessary being, in the sense that it does exist in all possible worlds. Uh, he creates it 
no matter what. So now the universe becomes a necessary being in that sense. That kind of takes God off of his, out of his unique ontological status. And also, it, it just seems uh, completely ad hoc. Uh, in other words, it, it sounds like a position to take simply to avoid the conclusion of the argument. Okay. <clears throat> uh, the next objection I want to look at is, is one by um, one, a, a person who I've already discussed, uh, William Lane Craig. A while back, Victor Stanger and Bill Craig had a debate on the existence of the Christian God, and in his list of incompatible properties arguments that he uh, forwarded against the existence of God, uh, Victor Stanger brought up what he calls the perfect creator problem, uh, which is, is very similar to, to the uh, argument I, I, I'm presenting today. Um, and here's a clip of Craig's response in that debate. And the response does apply to my argument here, and then I want to I explore some of the possible reasons one might not want to take this approach. He says, quote, according to the Christian view of God, God created the universe for the benefit of the creature and not for his own benefit. Not for any imperfection in himself, rather, it is a creation so that we might come to know God, the joy and blessedness of a personal relationship with him. So that's, that's Craig's claim, is that it's not as though God, um, it's not as though God isn't perfect because he created, he's, he's, because he's being perfect, he's giving a kind of gift, right? Now, there are a few problems with this. Uh, first, is that God creates the universe for the benefit of beings, beings that don't actually exist until God creates the universe for their benefit. Now, there's nothing like inventing a need to fill it. Uh, this is not the activity of a maximal great being. In fact, I think it's a rather insulting uh, view of the divine. Secondly, Craig wants to, uh, he wants to say that the enjoyment that God's creatures would experience while in a relationship with God is the source of God's motivation for creating, right? Um, he calls this a gift. Now, the problem, of course, is that this means that God desires to give meaningful gifts to others. But he has to, of course, create humans capable of such a relationship with him in order to do so. So in the same way that we enjoy giving gifts to family and friends because we prefer a world where those people have things that they need over a world where they don't, God prefers a world where humans exist and have a potential to be in a relationship with him over one where they don't. So contrary to what Craig thinks, such a free act of God's will is for his own benefit in order that his gift-giving desire be fulfilled, right? Uh, God prefers a world where he and creation exist over a world where he just exists. So God's preferences are supposed to be a kind of perfect indicator of moral and ontological quality. Yet he prefers some less than perfect world over a world that we've already discussed is, is pure perfection. When I say that God's preferences are perfect indicators of moral and ontological quality, what I mean is that kind of for any two objects, persons, or states of affairs, X and Y, if God prefers X over Y, then X is kind of like intrinsically, objectively better than Y. Thirdly, God is a trinity, three persons under the Godhead. Uh, divine and perfect eternal relationship exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, why would God need to create beings in order to give gifts? It seems that such a relationship is, is primed for the best of all possible gift exchange programs. This should be plenty sufficient to fulfill God's gift-giving desire without having to create, it, without having to create limited beings with, uh, with very little knowledge and very little power to dilute the quality of that state of affairs. Now, another issue I have with this is that it is that if the enjoyment his creatures would experience is the main reason for the gift that is, that is creating those creatures, why is it that so few make it into said relationship? Why didn't God just create those who he knew, with his foreknowledge, would freely accept the gift? The Bible is clear that the path to salvation is very narrow, and that the path to destruction is very wide. 
so it is for the sake of the Christians that God has created the vast majority of people who will uh, suffer for eternity. At the very least, we should maybe stop using the word gift for that, for, for describing that relationship. A uh, third objection here is that God, when he created, did not alter the overall quality. His creating the universe was a horizontal move rather than a vertical move. So we're not talking about improving, we're just talking about a difference in kind. So the overall state of affairs this person arguing is arguing that it's, it's still perfect um, because, you know, before the fall, all was perfect. Uh, and God is, of course, not to blame for humanity's uh, degrading of the actual world. But notice that for this objection to work, it must be using a word, it must be using the word perfect in the same way for both God and the creation. But that's clearly not the case here. There's an equivocation going on with this word. When we say that God is perfect, we mean, among other things, that God has those great making properties to their maximal degree. But when we say that creation is perfect, I mean, that's simply not the case. I mean, the people that God initially creates are limited in their power, are limited in their knowledge, are limited uh, in their, their moral qualities. So, if, so whatever we mean when we say God is perfect, it's not the same kind of perfect. And it would need to be the same for that objection to work. Uh, next, it's simply not sufficient to answer the challenge, actually. Intentional creation acts require a desire for a better state of affairs. Um, if an agent is indifferent on the quality of different kinds of state of affairs, then he would have no motivation. So the motivation to change the state of affairs from one kind of perfection to another still needs to be explained. And the last objection. This one is, I think, the most interesting. God can be the maximally great being without it being true that God's existing and nothing else existing is the maximally great state of affairs. Perhaps there are unique great-making properties, things that are objectively great but do not exist in the being of God. God, being the maximally great being, would of course want to actualize those unique great-making properties external to himself in the world. A unique external great-making property might be something like the property of being able to repent. Repentance, then, when actualized, would bring an additional maximally great property into the world and would preserve the perfection of the world while still having an intentional creation. Okay. That's a very interesting objection, but I think there, it's not without its, its problems. First, Notice what this objection does. It says that some things, behaviors, or concepts have natural moral properties, either intrinsic or possibly relational properties, that are valuable in and of themselves, and God, God's role is simply to recognize these values. And then, of course, if he sees them as good, he will act to bring them about because of their value. So if there plausibly exist these unique moral properties that are not grounded in the nature of God, the problem with this, of course, is that it, it's going to have a very strange effect on, your, on, on the relationship between morality and God. Some of you may be familiar with the Euthyphro dilemma that kind of gives you two options to say that, well, either God is the source of morality in the sense that God kind of invents it, or it's an outpouring of his nature, or God recognizes moral facts about the world, and he's kind of the messenger pigeon for us. Now, of course, the, um, many theists will want to hold that one cannot have morality without a God. I'm, I'm sure we're all familiar with that claim. And they're going to claim that this is, this is why. Uh, but this says that that's not the case. This claims that there are natural moral properties, whether God exists or not, and God just recognizes them. Uh, next, properties like the ability to repent presuppose the existence of sin. If God, because of his greatness, will always choose to 
indirectly create sin through quote-unquote free creatures, we can't really be held responsible here. If ought truly does imply can. If ought implies can, which is a pretty fundamental uh, principle in moral philosophy, then we can't really be held responsible if God created the world for the sake of something where our sinning is necessary. Okay, um, so that's the argument. Uh, and so again, if, if the form is valid, and if you agree with the premises, then you possibly have an incoherent view of reality, and, and you should examine your view. Unless, of course, and this is a very, very likely, uh, I have missed something very important, and it's about to be pointed out to me. Now, uh, it's time for the Q&A, I suppose. I think you have a decent argument if you're going up against St. Anselm. Mm -hmm. I think if you want this argument to stand on its own as a an argument to say that no such thing as God exists, it's got a number of weaknesses, the most glaring of which is that the attribute of perfection has no content, and that's your first premise, is to describe a state of perfection. If you describe God as all-knowing, then you have to also uh, postulate facts or propositions which can be known or not known. If you say God is all-good, you have to postulate a universe of moral choices mm -hmm. uh, between which uh, good and not good or not so good uh, right. can be made. There is no such thing in perfection in, in the type of classical philosophy you're dealing with unless you're willing to buy into, say, process theology which says the divine exists in an ever more complex relationship of events. There's, there's, there's nothing relational about perfection. You can't describe its content. And you start with that. Right. Now, if you argue against somebody who starts with that premise, you've got several good points to attack them. But if right. you're starting with that in a vacuum, you're stuck. I, I, I fully agree. Uh, and that's, that's why I was very, uh, that's why I tried to be very clear in that um, this is only going to apply to theists who hold to the perfect being theology. Uh, the, the, this kind of con conception of uh, the Anselmian theism. Um, I, I, I fully agree. Uh, perfection, I don't even know what that means, really. Uh, but perfect being theology, they have, they have put meaning to these terms. Christians, a lot of Christian philosophers, hold to perfect being theology. And so I still think it's a relevant argument in the sense that it has something to say to the majority of Christian philosophers um, and Christians who take uh, philosophy seriously. Because I think a, a large portion of them would hold to perfect being theology. To, um, to tag on Roger's comments a little bit, um, my thoughts had been kind of along the lines of his and maybe taken further almost that words are, uh, it's a, it seems like a big word game. So we take words that mean something to us in the context of our lives and the universe we see around us, but we're applying those to something ill-defined or undefined and nebulous where mm -hmm. we could pick any word and say, you know, maximally blue or maximally rough or, right. or whatever. And, you know, God by necessity must be the, the maximally blue being that can exist. And what's that mean? It doesn't really mean anything. Right, so right. is there any way in this that this is more than just semantic play uh, it, it may be just semantic play but it's semantic play that I hear Christian philosophers doing um, and, and, and you, had, you had commented earlier about uh, how the Christian God is supposed to be a relational being rather than a, a perfect being right whatever perfect means it can't be improved and if God's perfect he can't be improved 
And if God's the state of affairs, that state of affairs can't be improved. If God is such that he desires relationship, then there's something wrong because he's diluting the quality of the state of affairs there, which is something that would seem that a perfect being wouldn't do. And I know, I know that the objection here mainly is that these terms are meaningless. There are, there are plenty of people who, who seem to act as though they do mean something. Uh, Justin, um, as a uh, committed scientist, I, I kind of see a lot of this as mental masturbation. <laughs> um, that when we do definition, we, we talk about an operational definition, which is virtually, by definition, imperfect. It is what is conditional. It's what we'll do for now so we can measure it and evaluate it and relate it mm -hmm. in some way. That, that we seek ties to the natural world. And all of this is so unnatural. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know if I have anything to add to that. I would, um, I would largely agree. Uh, definitions are, are going to be revised as we apply them to certain things and we learn more about those things. And... Uh, with this argument, though, we're working in an, a different paradigm, really. Uh, we're working in a paradigm where these words mean something because God is the standard of quality. And I, I fully admit that, that these kinds of things are... Um, I think as you look at the, the Bible as literature, then it's a piece that attempts to explain something and God is personified and we can understand a God that is a person and that was what was attempted I think they were attempting to communicate was that that God had something that could connect with people he was loving he was you know so I mean you can imagine an artist I mean he's gonna create something because that's the way an artist is it's part of his being and right. so I have no problem with the idea of, you know, a God that would create because it's part of his being. Um, I think when you get into terms that have been created by theologians like omniscience and omnipresence and, and those sorts of things, all-knowing and all, all those things that, that talk about the qualities of God, those really aren't biblical terms, are they? They come from theologians who've tried to explain their idea of God. And I think that the idea of God as a person up in the sky was an idea that was given to people who didn't have much understanding historically. And so they were trying to explain what, what a personified God would be to try to give people some kind of image and it ended up being something that people, even today, um, you know, want to solidify into this person up in the sky because they take the Bible so literally. Um, but, you know, I see literature as attempting to, and the Bible as literature, attempting to explain. It does a really poor job in a lot of cases, but, um, you right. know, it still is a personification that attempts to create something that we can understand. And so then the, these other terms are things that theologians have come up with, and maybe they make, maybe they make some sense and maybe they don't. You right. know, I mean, I don't have any idea. I, I mean, to me, I could go along with Deepak Chopra's idea that, that you know, there are no non-God objects. All objects are God objects. I'm um, God. Yeah. Um, in that sense, you know, I mean, I can, I can, I can buy into that much better than that there are non-God objects. Yeah. Um, okay. So you had made the point where you know you're talking about the Bible and, and how the Bible portrays God, and I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want to uh, be sounding as though I'm suggesting that this kind of perfect being theology seems to be the best explanation of the biblical God. I think that that's completely wrong. Um, when I think of uh, a God that needs to send down 
angels to investigate whether Sodom and Gomorrah is really as bad as what people are saying, that makes me think that maybe God isn't, isn't omniscient. Um, and I totally agree. A lot of this stuff is, is, is theologians um, putting this stuff up. But again, these are Christian philosophers arguing with their conceptions of God. Um, I don't even want to suggest that this is actually biblically sound. Um, I think that actually it, it isn't. Uh, but that's an entirely different discussion. Justin was uh, taking kind of a battering up there, and I wanted to say something in defense, <laughs> and that uh, uh, atheology, if you want to call it that, is a is a messy job, and there's a lot of turnover in that field for a reason. There aren't too many uh, atheist theologians because it's it is it is thankless, but. People like Justin are doing this work so the rest of us can not pay attention to it. Uh, and there is, there, is some, there is something good to be said about that because, um, yes, people are playing these semantic games. They are, uh, uh, they are developing these, these rationalist models that probably don't refer to anything. But one of the best things to do in that situation is actually to walk into their game, play it, and show and watch it unravel from the inside. And so uh, many of us, we're not, we're not uh, metaphysically prone, we're not prone to metaphysics in our thinking, but uh, for, some, for some students, this sort of thing can be uh, a revelation for them. I guess I'm getting a little stuck on time. I think at the beginning you tried to explain that this was happening like atemporal. Okay. But... You know, you have this, like, where it's perfect, and then since it changes, it couldn't be perfect before because how could it be perfect after the change? Uh, but if, okay, if time is passing, perfect world, just God, or it's perfect, it's just God, mm -hmm. then maybe God starts thinking, gee, maybe there should be more, and he can still be perfect in that thought, and then he can create some stuff, and it could all still be perfect. Uh, right, um, but that stuff wouldn't be ontologically perfect like God, so what he's doing is he's degrading the quality of the overall uh, state of affairs there. Um, but, but you were talking about um, uh, time and, and, and atemporality, and, and that's actually another argument that uh, I think is, is kind of interesting. When, when we have, when we talk about intentional action, we talk about a desire existing uh, prior to and being the motivator for the action. Uh, but if, of course, God is timeless, how does he get from a timeless state of affairs to inventing this thing called time, which is a, a kind of flow? Um, it seems uh, largely incoherent. It's actually a perfect time that you brought that up, Justin, because my comment um, kind of piggybacks off of yours. Uh, and it's a problem with Premise three. I'm not understanding exactly how you conclude that from the first two premises. Okay. Um, so if, if you could first just restate uh, the argument. Let me uh, hop up to three here. Okay, so so there exists a possible world where, where God exists and is the only thing that exists. Premise two is that God is perfect. And then um, premise three is that uh, God being the only thing that exists and being perfect is the only thing that exists, and so that state of affairs is perfect. Because there's nothing to kind of distinguish God from anything else. Okay, so the argument then is that P is the best possible world because God is perfect, right? It's important to notice, though, that nothing else exists. Right. Otherwise, you know, then you're possibly degrading... Okay, so, sorry, my actual comment then um, talks about time. And, and so I think Christian theologians understand God to possess all concepts. So, like, all concepts like human, world, other, other possible worlds. And, and all, this, all this talk about these other possible worlds existing, it's, it's kind of meaningless Be because this is the only possible world that exists currently. And so, and so my, my point is that P and this possible world that we exist in now have eternally existed within God's mind. And so God never actually existed in a world P. 
from his perspective. It's only from our perspective, and it's only from time so that, saying, we, that we derive such a possible world as P. So God didn't actually create the world? He just exists necessarily? Is it I, no, in no, no. God's mind? So we're, are, are we all mental properties? Well, we we are mental properties, and we're also physical properties. But my argument, though, is that is that both of those worlds existed in God's mind eternally. So, so you would have to state when it is that that God created this possible world. But you can't do that because He's an e- eternal being. So there's no mark huh. from which you could derive that. Yeah. Um... I've never heard of that view before. Um, it's it's interesting. I I guess I would my 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 problem with it is that a distinction between possible world and actual world is a relevant distinction. Uh, once once it stops being conceptual in the mind of God and becomes the actual world, that's a transition that that I'm that I'm concerned with. I suppose is is what I'm saying. But that's that's interesting. I also want to say something that's neither dismissive or question begging. So it seems like what happens a lot in, in response to these, specifically this kind of argument, is like a there's a kind of shift in the value of say creation or in creating, right? So it's always the the, the shift that the apologist does is well, the value of the act is not say external to it, but rather something internal to it, right? So you'll hear apologists say, uh, you know, God chooses this messy way, uh, this messy and rather wasteful uh, means of creation, namely evolution, because, gosh, what's the phrase? You know, God delights in uh, creation creating itself, and it's just so much better than, you know, God just creating poof. There's, you know, heaven right there. God enjoys seeing people you know, kind of become individuals and go through this struggle and they hone their souls to, you know, achieve heaven rather than just be there or something like that. Right. So the idea is, well, yeah, a father on his birthday can just go out and buy, you know, something for $10, but giving it to his child, 10 bucks to his child, you know, and the kid goes out and gets something for daddy, you know, it's just better than, you know, yeah, you get the same thing, but it's just better somehow. It's more virtuous, you know, right. something intrinsic to the act rather than, extrinsic to it so i mean there's this famous challenge to uh utilitarianism that says we're well imagine yourself being a god and uh you have the choice between creating two worlds both of which are maximally good right they both have say a hundred terps or hedons or whatever of happiness but in one world everyone is uh completely selfish and in the other world everyone's completely selfless right so if we're complete utilitarians, we are, you know, just completely d- dumbstruck. We can't create, right? But most of us would appreciate bringing into the world, you know, bringing into existence the world where everyone is selfless rather than completely selfish, even though they're both, you know, they both have 100 units of happiness or goodness or something like that. So right. I guess my question is, do you see this kind of pattern where apologists will say, well, look, there's something good about bringing into the universe, you know, uh, uh, some kind of, I guess, relational or being a person, it has to have, uh, you know, you can't be a lover without a beloved, you know, I don't know, it seems like the response there is, well, medicine is good, but not having the disease is better, but I don't know, what do you think? Uh, yes, (laughs) um, no, I mean, I think you get the same thing from, uh, the value of, of, uh, morally significant creatures, right? Uh, which is, is um, the, the most popular, I guess, answer to the problem of evil is that God creates because there's something valuable intrinsically to being a, a uh, morally free uh, creature. And, and yeah, I mean, when, when you have things like that, but then all, at the same time, people want to ground all of goodness in God, there is a tension there that I, I don't know, I've, I've yet to be able to wrap my, my mind around. For me, you lost me right at the very beginning when you stated the three 
attributes of, of God from the creation, from the theological standpoint, all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good. In differential equations and calculus, some of us learn that you can't maximize more than one variable at a time. And obviously these three attributes conflict with each other. You pointed that out. Why do we need to go much further other than to deal with those that are stuck in that in the language that you went through? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing, is that this argument is designed to critique a version of, of the divine that holds to um, two or more properties. And, and if you can show that, you know, either showing a contradiction among properties or showing a contradiction among a property and the world, then the person is reduced to absurdity. They either have to assert that contradictions can be true about the world or or they uh, they abandon their belief. So this this argument, this whole thing that you're just saying is it, it like it, it it needs to have a perfect god, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. And basically what the argument is that God can't be perfect because he has a desire to create a world of people and uh, that's kind of like what I got out of all this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know you were talking about other worlds and stuff that maybe exist within God's head, but like those would have like always existed, right? If he right. Well, when we when we when we talk about oh, excuse me uh, when we when we say that God is perfect, what we're saying is that there are certain properties uh, to their maximal degree, and that if God creates anything that doesn't have those kinds of properties, then it's 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 not perfect. It's less than. And so what God is doing, he's degrading the overall quality of the state of affairs, which a perfect God wouldn't do. A God would preserve as much quality as he can. A perfect God. Right. Okay. An all-knowing, perfect, everything's... Yeah, okay. Right. Some, some more minor mental gymnastics. To, to the objection about uh, uh, that uh, your initial premises won't work because of the... that God already has in his mind his creation and everything else. Uh, I think that that only works if we limit God's knowledge to actual existence. If we talk about if God knows all things contingent, uh, all things possible, uh, that that would that would run into that would run that objection would then run into problems because you'd have to explain then why does God implement one of those worlds in His head as opposed to others. If you want to limit God's omniscience, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't thought it through enough to know if the objection still works, but I think that would be the only saving route was, would be to limit God's uh, knowledge in some way. Good point. <laughs> yeah, I'd just like to say on your first three uh, topics, that, uh, it seems to me like it's playing a, uh, like a children's number game where uh, what's the largest number you can think of, and then everybody can always think of one more. But it's kind of, they sent the ground rules where uh, God is perfect or nothing higher, but uh, um, you can always think of something a little bit bigger, you know, something that made God. So I think this whole argument is within the realm of they set the rules for this whole debate, and, and, we're, and we're playing their game. Yeah, I mean, when, when they define God as a necessary being, of course, they wouldn't, they would say that to ask what created God is a question that wouldn't make sense in the same sense that um, asking, you know, why isn't the circle more round, right? Um, it's just ignoring what round means, ignoring what a circle means. Have you shared your, um, your argument with your target audience? And if so, what kind of feedback have you gotten? Um, pretty much those four that I've, I've raised and, and, and discussed. Um, and I don't know, I've, I've, I've got a few people pretty, uh, existentially confused. So, which is always nice, but, um, I don't know, I, I get a lot of people saying that the whole, what it means for God to be perfect is different from what it means for a state of affairs to be perfect. Um, and I, I think I think that's an interesting objection, but but as I said, I, there are significant problems with it. So thanks very much, Justin. Thank you. 
To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.